Welcome to the Redeemer Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. At Redeemer, we are committed to following Jesus and connecting people to God's transforming love. To stay connected to all that's happening here, visit RedeemerTulsa.org or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now here's our associate pastor, Adam Barnett. We'll go ahead and say it like you mean it. Good morning. It is great to be with you. Let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Uh, If you forgot your Bible, there's a red one right under the seat in front of you. And if the Bible is new to you this morning, want to make sure you can find that quickly. Uh, 2 Samuel 6 is in the red Bibles on page 479. Page 479. We're in this series, Beyond Belief. And we're looking at the life of David. Last week, Bill focused on David's vision as a leader. There was a decisive moment when King David moved his people from Hebron to Jerusalem. Bill interpreted this decision as follows. David wanted his people to be physically safe, but spiritually risky. He spoke about our vision as a church and offered a brief overview of our last year, and it has been a great year at Redeemer. But metaphorically, we are still moving individually and also corporately as a church. We are moving into our Jerusalem where we feel God is calling us into the future. We are surrendering what is comfortable and we are clinging to the vision as a church. We believe greater things are still to be done. Uh, By the way, many of you love a song called God of This City, in which the lyrics read, greater things have yet to come, greater things are still to be done in this city, there is no one like our God. Well, I have a little surprise for you, a good buddy of mine named Aaron wrote that song, and uh, he is coming to Oklahoma from Ireland, And I said, while you're here, would you want to come join our worship team and help lead worship one morning? And he said, of course, with a gorgeous accent. Um, So he will be here one Sunday in June, and I am not going to tell you which week because now you're going to have to attend all of them. (laughs) Speaking of good songs, in 2002, there was a song released called Undignified, and the lyrics are as follows. I will dance, I will sing, to be mad for my king. Nothing, Lord, is hindering this passion in my soul. And I'll become even more undignified than this. Some may say it's foolishness. I'll become even more undignified than this. Leave my pride by my side. La, 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 la. Hey, it's all for you, my Lord. So here in 2 Samuel 6, we find the passage of Scripture that inspired that song, Undignified. So let's first set the stage. The Ark of the Covenant was a sacred chest made by the ancient Israelites. And I've got a picture, not of the original, but one of Harrison Ford. And it's a uh, well-designed ark, as far as we know. In Exodus 25, we see a specific God-given design down to the centimeters of this ark. Inside were two tablets containing the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod, and a golden urn filled with manna. The ark moved around as a part of Israel's military campaigns 
and was commonly housed in a tent, and you will also hear it referred to as the Ark of God, the Ark of the Lord, the Ark of Testimony. Now, we know in a battle with the Philistines, the Israelites lost 30,000 men, and they also lost possession of the Ark. But when you have David on your team, of course, under his leadership and his military strategy, they defeated the Philistines, and David wanted the Ark back. He wanted possession of the ark again. It was a symbol of the presence of God, and he wanted it there in Jerusalem because that's where he reigned as king, and he wanted God to reign there as well. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to summarize what happened throughout this chapter because it's lengthy to read, and I'm going to do this in story form. David then organized another 30,000 men to retrieve the ark and bring it back into the protective walls of Jerusalem. He and the whole house of Israel celebrated as the ark made its way southward and festive music filled the air as the procession went down the road. Then, unexpectedly, the oxen, which was pulling the ark on a cart, stumbled Uzzah, who was likely a priest, reached out to grab the ark and protect it from falling to the ground. Oops. Scripture made it very clear that touching the ark under any circumstance was an irreverent violation and would produce immediate consequences. God struck him down. Deader than a door nail. While the other man began to tremble with fear, and at least we believe a dozen peed in their robes, a wise guy spoke up. Guys, did you forget that we were instructed by God to carry the ark on the shoulders of Levites? Oh, we're just a bunch of idiots. Why are we pushing it on a cart? So David started thinking, I'm not sure that I want this ark in Jerusalem after all. Um, Was this fatal judgment upon Uzzah only, or will it follow to wherever the ark resides? Will it follow me to Jerusalem? So he says to be careful. Excuse me, he didn't say this. This is all speculation. He likely thought, to be careful, let's take it to Obed-Edom's house and leave it there for three months and see what happens to him. (laughs) This is great. Come on. Uh, So he believes uh, Obed-Edom will either be cursed or blessed. Obed-Edom, of course, slept with one eye open for the next 90 nights because this entire scenario was a little bit bizarre and terrifying. And after three months, he sent word to David, King David, thank you for bringing the ark to my home. Ever since it's been here, I have been greatly blessed. My family has been blessed. My crops, my livestock, King, everything has been blessed. And then the tone of his voice changed and he said to his king, David, but what if I would have been killed? And David said, well, Obed, that was a risk I was willing to take. Again, he didn't really say that, but that's funny. If you didn't give me a courtesy laugh right there, I'm going to give you one more chance. Hold on. He said, Obed, that was a risk I was willing to take. Come on. Oh, so David then figures if this thing is safe for one household, if this thing is safe for one family, the presence of God, the ark, then it's got to be safe for an entire city and a nation. And so we pick up in verse 12. 
where King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might. While he and all Israel were bringing it up, bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it, and David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then, because throughout history we know all celebrations need food, he gave a loaf of bread and a cake of dates and cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites. Both men and women and all the people went to their homes. So did David. When he returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today going around half-naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father. Ouch! Or anyone else from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Some believe she had no children because God sealed up her womb as a punishment for her judgment. And other scholars literally believe she had no children because David just steered clear of his wife from that day forward. First of all, on the heels of construction in Jerusalem and the battle with the Philistines and securing the ark in Jerusalem, there was more work to be done. Now go ahead, if you're in agreement with me, nod your head if there's always more work to be done in your life. Come on. I mean, there's always something to be done. I don't want to distract you further, but many of you have already thought about what you need to have done by 2.30 p.m. today. So check back in, and let's look at the text. Uh, there's more work to be done, and plenty of it in all of our lives, but here's a great example from David that we can glean today. David moved beyond work to worship. And so first and foremost, I would ask you to fill in the blank uh, with the word work there. David moved beyond work. There was plenty of work to be done, and he chose instead to worship. What do you need to move beyond today in order to worship? If it's not work for you, what do you need to 
move beyond today in order to focus on worshiping the Lord. David stopped what he needed to do, work, and he did what he was created to do, and that's worship. I want to offer three encouragements or maybe challenges to you today in regard to our worship lives. And the first is this. Worship is our reckless response to God's love. Worship is our reckless response to God's love. David was overjoyed as the ark was carried down the streets of Jerusalem. And when I say he was overjoyed, that very well could be an understatement. And then he did something that no one expected. The king of Israel took off his royal robe, and he began to dance, twisting and turning and jumping and spinning in the streets. Before the eyes of all the spectators, he would have appeared to be possessed. And in one way, I think he may have been. In worship, we delight in the love of God. We delight in the love of God, we treasure his presence, we rejoice in his renown. In worship, we declare the love of God, we set our gaze on Jesus Christ, who we know and profess rules and reigns over all things. Yes, Jesus does warn us, be careful not to practice your righteousness before other people so that you're seen by those other people, and then they want to honor you. He does warn us, right? But... Even still, if we have a humble passion and if we have authenticity in our heart, we can display our love for God through our worship. Physically display our love for God through our worship. So my question, do we worship with radiant faces? If people walk in from the outside and have no idea who Jesus is or that he has a plan to reach and redeem all of humanity and he has saved your soul from the pit of hell and they look at your face in this sanctuary while you worship, is your face radiant? Are we clapping our hands, raising our hands, bowing to our knees? Are we enjoying God or are we passive in our worship? Are we stoic? Do we stand here with looks on our faces like we're at a funeral? I apologize if that was your toe, but I think it's a fair question. This is a fair question to ask. Are our faces radiant? Are we enjoying God? Sure, there are moments, absolutely moments and seasons in our lives when our worship is quiet and still and reverent and heavy. And there are even moments, many of you, when you face trials and hardships of many kinds, those moments our worship is even somber. And we read that throughout the text. Lament, how long, O Lord, right? There are moments for that kind of worship, yes. However, our worship, no matter what we are walking through, our worship should always move us toward hope and joy. Always. That's who Jesus is. He is our hope. He is our joy. Christians ought to be the most joyful people in all the earth. They ought to be the most joyful people in all the earth. So, is worship the time and space that we express that joy? Yes, absolutely it is. So, before we move on, if you'll look to your neighbor, and if you will joyfully tell your neighbor, you have permission to enjoy Jesus today. Go ahead.
Okay, that was cute. That was a really quiet little whisper, kind of, kind of still and quiet and, and, and actually pretty tame. And so we're going to try again, and we're going to you know, give you the, the instructions again. If you'll look to your neighbor joyfully with a radiant face and say, you have permission to enjoy Jesus today. Come on. Wonderful. Worship is our reckless response to God's love. Number two, worship is for an audience of one. That's it. Worship is for an audience of one. When David returned to his house, his wife, Michal, came out to meet him and began to scold him for the way in which he worshiped in the streets that day. She accuses him of disrobing in the sight of servants. Was David naked that day, or naked, however you say it? Um, it's highly unlikely that he was dancing in the complete nude in the streets that day. It says in Scripture that he was dressed as a priest. There are layers, my friends. If he took his royal robe off, he was also wearing a linen undergarment. Still, David responded to her, In God's presence, I'm going to dance all I want to dance. In God's presence, I will dance for his glory more recklessly even than what you've already seen. He says, as far as I'm concerned, and the text says humiliated before God, he says, as far as I'm concerned, I don't care if I look foolish. I love God that much and I want to worship. Another question for you today, is there someone in your life that needs to hear that message from you? That you love God so much that you're going to worship, and it doesn't matter what they think, uh, say it lovingly, but you don't care if you look foolish in the way that you love your God. You don't care if it's humiliating to you here in the eyes of people next to you. You just want to worship. You love God that much, and you can't help but to rejoice in your Savior. Who cares? If we are humiliated in the eyes of the world, who cares if we look foolish? Remember verse 16, Michal was not a humble participant in worship, but she was a proud spectator. She was not a humble participant, but a proud, remember she was looking out the window, a proud spectator. How often is the worship of people that are humbly participating criticized by people that are spectators? That's what she did, while David, on the other hand, completely lost track of the crowd around him and just enjoyed God's presence. Frankly, it seems like he didn't really care what anybody else thought. Michal tried to discourage David's enthusiasm in worship. Please listen, don't let anyone do that to you. Let me say that again. She tried to discourage David's enthusiasm in worship. Please don't let anyone do that to you. Instead, worship like Jesus is watching you. No one else. Just worship like Jesus is watching you. I'm going to take a step back and let that linger for five seconds. Just give that a read. 
Number three, worship is, and over the course of our lives and our process of spiritual maturing, worship is our all-encompassing identity. It isn't what we do here in four or five songs on a Sunday morning four times a month. This is a great place to express your love for God, but worship permeates every arena of our lives. We worship God when we love our neighbor or when we welcome a stranger or serve someone in need. We worship God when we speak the truth, when we pray for the sick, and when we choose forgiveness. We worship God when we love mercy and act justly, and when we walk humbly with our God. That's how we worship every arena in our lives. And last week, Bill had the opportunity to draw your attention and your memory to the campaign that we're in as a church. And I want you to know here, one year later into our campaign, I'm not sure where the time has gone, here we are, and this campaign, this last year, has been a remarkable one. It has changed the landscape of our church, spiritually and physically. God has done incredible things in this place. And it's such a privilege to be a part of this church family. This campaign is opening the door for us to reach more people and welcome more people and even build more space for our youngest generation. Praise the Lord that those walls are not big enough anymore to hold our children. Praise God. We have so much to be thankful for. This campaign is opening the door for us to put down roots in Northwest Tulsa and to serve as an advocate for people who are living in poverty. You can't imagine, but some of you have, the difference that this vision for Northwest Tulsa is making right now. We chose a year ago to give generously, not to bring God our leftovers, but to bring Him our best and to bring Him our first, to go above and beyond. And I close to say, that also is worship. What a wonderful privilege and joy it is to bring God our best, to participate in something that's much bigger collectively than we could ever accomplish as individuals, and to worship God always and in all ways. So if you'll stand to your feet, what I'd like to do before we worship again is revisit the lyrics to the song that I mentioned earlier and read this sort of as an anthem over our church family, to read these lyrics as an agreement that we can all enter into together right now. We, the Redeemer Church family, will dance and we will sing to be mad for our king. Nothing, Lord, will hinder this passion in our souls. We will become even more undignified than this. Some, yes, may say that it's foolishness. We will become, as a church family, even more undignified than this. We will leave our pride right here by our side. La, 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 hey, it's all for you, our Lord.
our King. May this be true for this church family and for his glory alone. Let's worship.